The Outline, World Dispatch. Thursday, June 29th, 2017. I'm in Derek Gayo. Today on The Dispatch, I look into the UK's obsession with charity songs. There's the question of which musicians can support which causes. And Gabby Del Valle on the fate of Trump's travel ban. Until the court says what it means, we're not really sure. Here's The Dispatch. Culture. The UK record for best first day sales for a single this decade doesn't belong to a pop superstar like Beyonce or Taylor Swift or Adele. It belongs to Simon Cowell and the 50 performers and groups who contributed vocals to a cover of Bridge Over Troubled Water, a charity single to benefit victims of the Grenfell Tower fire. It reached number one on the charts and sold 120,000 copies in one day when it was released on June 21st. This bridge over troubled water follows a seemingly very British tradition of responding to tragedy with a star-driven, music-focused, philanthropic effort. Sure, other countries host star-studded benefit concerts and release charity records too, but nowhere do these efforts seem to have the level of visibility and success that they do in the UK, where they were born. George Harrison is credited with producing the first modern charity record in 1971 to raise awareness of Bangladeshi refugees displaced by war and a tropical cyclone. The 80s were the golden era for charity singles. 1984 gave us Do They Know It's Christmas, a patronizing ethnocentric ballad about a destitute and joyless Africa. In 1985, we got We Are the World, a song to benefit famine relief in Africa. It topped the US and UK charts. That's What Friends Are For, a star-studded track to benefit AIDS research and prevention, found success in both countries too. Since then, there have been a number of other charity songs, like a 2001 cover of What's Going On, or 2010's Waving Flag. Give me freedom, give me fire. But outside of the UK, few have been able to recreate the successes of their 80s predecessors. There, at least 25 charity singles have reached the number one spot on the singles charts since 2000. Only one, Waving Flag, has done so in Canada. None have reached the top in the US. Charity singles and concerts may be rooted in wider English philanthropic culture. The UK regularly ranks high on the Charities Aid Foundation's World Giving Index, taking the top spot in 2013. But journalists and scholars have said the impetus for that philanthropy might be lingering guilt from the nation's colonialist past. Charity singles' continued success in the UK could also, in part, be due to greater efforts to fold popular music into charitable causes that have partnerships with major broadcasters. Every year, major BBC-produced telethons raise funds for the charities Comic Relief and Children in Need by commissioning records from popular artists. 
that corporate sponsorship often helps these records get to the top. You can have the best cause in the world and the best single in the world. That's John Street, professor of political science at the University of East Anglia. But unless you get the support of the television networks, you're unlikely to be able to have much of an impact. The BBC's involvement also ensures that each charitable cause and associated single has the broadest appeal possible, sometimes at the expense of nuanced public conversation about polarizing political topics. And pairing artists with causes can itself be an exercise in marketing. There's the question of which, which musicians can support which causes. So, you know, the, the kind of musicians who are credible on one sort of platform like Bono or Bob Geldof or Springsteen, there are certain causes that you would associate them with. Um, but there aren't, but, you know, if you were talking about One Direction or one of the, or the boy bands of various kinds, they, they are less credible, at least in terms of causes of a certain kind, you know, where international governments are involved. But they can work very effectively in the kind of aftermath of things like the Manchester bombing. So it, it does appear that there are kinds of artists who will play well with certain kinds of charities and others who won't. And there are certain kinds of artists that charities go a long way to avoid. The politics and intentions behind popular charity singles and concerts will always be up for debate, but they're certainly effective at raising money. Bridge Over Troubled Water is continuing to rack up funds for Grenfell Tower victims, and the initial $80 million raised during Live Aid was still being distributed in Africa years later. There's no simple answer as to why charity singles and concerts are so popular in the UK. But the country's history of colonialism, centralized national broadcasting, and politics have combined to create a popular musical charity culture that isn't so easily found in other places. As time goes on, tragedies will continue to happen, injustices will continue to be uncovered, and the British will continue to use star power and song to appeal to the public for help. Power. On Monday, the Supreme Court allowed parts of the president's travel ban to go into effect until it hears oral arguments on the case in the fall. As part of the ban, refugees and nationals from six countries, Iran, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen, are barred from entering the country for at least 90 days. That's except for those who can claim a, quote, bona fide relationship to people or entities in the United States. The court is expected to announce what constitutes a bona fide relationship this afternoon. Gabby Del Valle spoke to some experts about what it could mean. Hey, Gabby. Hi, Anne. How are you? Um, you know, <laughs> how are you? I'm good. So what does bona fide mean in this context? Until the court says what it means, we're not really sure. Um, I spoke to Betsy Fisher, the policy director at the International Refugee Assistance Program, who told me that it specifically does mean that if you are, have a U.S. relative, then you automatically have a bona fide relationship. And if you have a job in the United States, you have a relationship as well. But it could also apply to like refugees that have been accepted into the U.S. and haven't come in yet because they have bona fide relationships with resettlement agencies like the International Refugee Assistance Program. So the, a significant number of refugees um, have family in the United States and are eligible to be considered because of that family connection. Um, lots of folks are in the process because they worked for the U.S. government in Iraq 
and are seeking refugee status um, because of the risks that have come to them, those are, you know, categorically bona fide relationships with the U.S. Um, but then even for people who don't have those connections, um, the Supreme Court says that a bona fide relationship to an entity in the U.S. should be formal, documented, and um, created in the ordinary course of business. Um, and, and that's exactly what refugee agencies that welcome refugees into their communities do. It's formal, it's documented, and it's just kind of their normal day-to-day work. In which case, the ban would only really apply to tourists and refugees that haven't even been resettled. So it wouldn't apply to a lot of people. According to data from the State Department, there were just over 110,000 tourists from those six countries last year. So it would apply to a very small percentage of people from those countries. But Fisher said that the real danger lies in the rhetoric around the ban and the implications that it has for the people from those countries and for Muslims in the United States? In my view, I think that the harm is, um, the the real harm is that this executive order has a discriminatory intent and sends a message to to our Muslim community members, um, to our Muslim American citizens, that that they are somehow suspect by virtue of, Mm -hmm. of what they believe. But as far as the actual harm goes in terms of who will not be able to come, we don't really know yet, and that will depend completely on how the government will interpret and implement that particular provision. So what would those implications be for people living in the United States from those countries or Muslims in the United States? In the U.S., um, it would mostly be an increase in Islamophobia and racism and like delegating those people to a second-class citizen status and She and Naz Ahmad, who's a staff attorney at CUNY's Creating Law Enforcement Accountability and Responsibility Project, told me that it could have a chilling effect on travel because another thing that hasn't been announced yet is who is going to determine whether or not someone has a bona fide relationship. That could just be left up to the discretion of the airports, the airlines. It's really unclear. It could lead to a similar situation like the one with the first travel ban where people were allowed to board planes and get into the United States. And then once they arrived, they weren't allowed in and other people were. And it's just really chaotic and confusing. And so have these six countries responded in any way to this new announcement? Yeah, Iran's foreign minister called it um, racist, which is correct, (laughs) even though the Trump administration did frame it as a ban from people from countries that sponsor terrorism. It's very clear that their understanding of that is countries where the majority of the people are of Muslim descent. And he said it's an indication of the decisions of leaders of the U.S. to discriminate against Muslims. And then said, it's regrettable that the American government, because of their economic and commercial short-sightedness, have closed their eyes to the main perpetrators of terrorism in America. Wow. Powerful words. Thanks, Gabby. Thanks, Anne. That concludes The Dispatch. If you like our show and you want to get in touch, feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or tweet at us, at Outline. I'm Anderic Gaillot. Have a great weekend. More stories on Monday.